0: Feel free to find your way back to your seat, and as you're finding your seat, tell the person you sit next to you what you think the best movie is, the best movie of all time. I didn't hear anybody say holes, probably the best, best Disney Channel classic. Anybody remember Disney Channel back when it was good? Yeah, you guys are the real ones. You guys are the real ones. Didn't uh, Drake and Josh have a movie? Yeah. Was that the one where they faked the money thing or something? Yeah. Okay. We're we're going down memory lane. Hey, Collective, it is good to be here tonight with you guys. Uh, Can we just thank the worship team for just leading us tonight? Worship. Absolutely killing it. Oh, my goodness. I was almost like, we just need to keep going. We just need to, like, keep going in this worship set. No teaching, nothing tonight. We're just going to go all night. Anybody down for that some night? Like, just, like, an all-night worship set? Maybe we'll do it, maybe we'll do it. But uh, hey, we've been in a series titled "Love Is in the Air." Uh, the premise of this series is pretty straightforward. We're we're looking at what God has to say about everything relationships, everything as it pertains to friendships, everything as it pertains to sex and sexuality. And um, I don't know if you've looked at a Bible in a while. Maybe it's all digital nowadays, but the Bible's kind of thick, wouldn't you say so? Like mine's like a 1,000 pages, which is kind of a lot of pages. God has a lot of things to say, wouldn't you agree? Uh, and, And specifically on these topics, he has a lot of things to say. And as young adults, as people traversing through university. I like calling college university. It makes me feel like British. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, uni, you know. Um, As you're traversing through college, university, work, the workspace, home life, moving out, whatever season and moment you find yourself in, it's important to have these conversations. It's important to go to the word and to understand what God has to say about these things because culture and society at large have a lot to say about it. And as followers of Jesus, we cannot allow culture and society and the environment apart from God's word to determine what we think about these things. And so, if you got a Bible, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31. And I want to teach a sermon tonight titled, The Proverbs 31 Man. I changed the title of the sermon, okay? The land is like freaking out in the back. But uh, during worship, I felt necessary to change it to this title, The Proverbs 31 man, because Proverbs 31 is a book notorious, is a section of Proverbs notorious for holding women to a really what seems like unrealistic standard sometimes. You ever ever read Proverbs 31 as a woman you're like, I do none of these things. I don't go to the market. I don't bring home income, all these different things. I don't sit at the gate. Like, how do I sit at the gate in uh, Albuquerque? Is that like the South Valley? I don't know, Right. But something fascinating is Proverbs 31 actually starts with the standard of what a godly man looks like. That, that Proverbs 31 is actually a man, a king, re- recollecting, recollecting the advice his mom has given him as to what it looks like to be a godly man. The standards a godly man should have on his life. So tonight I, I want to teach specifically to the men if you'll let me, fellas. But also I want to teach to the ladies as well. Because for the men, I I want to share from the word and encourage you as to what it looks like to be a man in the kingdom of God. Because I don't know if you've looked around lately, culture at large has a lot to say about what it means to be a man. Wouldn't you agree? It has a lot to say about what it means to not be a man, (laughs) more like. It, It seems like every day a new thing is coming out that men can do less and less, or on the other vein that, that men are being redefined and reshaped and as men this can become confusing and frustrating, it can make you feel delirious. It can also set really unrealistic expectations for men. And As a follower of Jesus, what does it mean to have a godly masculinity, right? D- does that mean that you can bench a lot and you're flexing in the mirror all day? That that you drive a fast car that's super loud, you're one of those guys that like straight piped his Honda Civic or something, right? Like. What does it mean, right? There's a million different definitions and terms. And if you scroll through social media, you'll find a million more different definitions and terms as to what it means to be a man. And as the first week, as I shared, we have, we have ground rules for this series. And one of the first ground rules is, is I'm sticking to the word. I've, I've, I've thrown a little bit of opinions there. And I give you, I've given you a warning when I've been opinionated. But I'm sticking to the word. I, I have no desire to simply do a TED Talk. My desire is to teach the word. And so from the word, what is the expectation of men? But specifically, teaching to the the ladies tonight, it's healthy to understand what does it mean to know and understand what a good man looks like. Okay, not like looks like appearance, right? Okay, like we understand whatever, right? But what, what is a good man like? Because for you as an individual, as as a woman in this moment of culture, it's important to understand that, that good men do exist. Okay, I can tell you that right now. All right, they're in this room right now. I know some good men in this room. But but what standards and what expectations should a woman hold a man to when entering to a relationship, when when being interested in getting engaged, when when getting interested in getting married, when when simply being friends? What what standard should men be held to? So my goal tonight isn't to berate men, isn't to fire off on men, have a roast session like Justin Bieber all those years ago, right? Like, that's not my desire. My desire is by the word and through the word to set a healthy, realistic expectation of what godly masculinity looks like. Is that okay with us? we cool with that? Amen. All right, we're going to pr- be in Proverbs chapter 31. You can turn there now if you'd like. Um, but I'm always fascinated by uh, Hollywood award shows, like they're pretty much now at this point just different millionaires giving their take on life, and it's so unrelatable to the highest degree. But award shows really fascinated me because people are given these little statues, sometimes it's like the Oscars or the Golden Globes and Ricky Gervais just roasting everybody. Um, I'm not recommending you watch that, but it's pretty funny. Um, the worst shows are fascinating because people are being commended, most likely, if they're winning, like, best actor. They're being commended on being somebody else, right? Like, like they're being commended and told, you did such a good job being so fake. Good job, <laughs> right? And, and actors are fascinating because they, they step into these roles as an entirely different person. You watch, like, a movie with Christian Bale, which is, like, the best Batman, in my opinion. Um, I'm not sorry about that. And if you watch interviews with Christian Bale, this guy literally will starve himself or gain like 300 pounds to live into a role. He's what people call a method actor. Um, The guy who played the godfather, Marlon Brando, right? Like he was a method actor. Like they lived into this role. It's fascinating to me. It's really interesting. And specifically with really talented actors, how it takes them forever to win an Oscar. And people base their skill on their ability to win this silly award. I bring this up because the text we're reading tonight, it it proposes the question of what is the role of men in the kingdom of God. What what is the role of a man supposed to fulfill when it comes to following the path of God? And for context, Proverbs is and the bulk of it is written by uh, King Solomon. But the last couple chapters are really interesting because they're written by different authors, um, and most scholars agree this author is not Solomon but this author is a man by the name of King Lemuel who is over a kingdom spoken about in uh, Genesis, Genesis chapter 22, I believe, it talks about him and the kingdom he rules over. But what's fascinating about this last portion of Proverbs is it's the sayings of a king. And I believe it's made its way into scripture, obviously, because this applies for how men are to operate in the kingdom of God. See, you don't have to be a Middle Eastern king, and if you are, please tithe, Um, but you don't have to be a Middle Eastern king to understand and read into and apply in your life these phrases and sayings, because whether you like to admit it or not, whether you like to accept it or not, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're royalty. Yeah, yeah, pretty cool, right? Like, we get to inherit a lot of cool stuff in heaven, that's great, Um, but you're not necessarily the king, sorry, you're not going to be a king, okay? You're more prince, princesses, okay, great. Um, And in the kingdom of God, we are royalty. Paul tells us this in Romans, that we are co-heirs with Christ. That that we are part of the kingdom of God. That we have been adopted into sonship, daughtership with Christ. And so you can apply this as to how to operate into the kingdom of God. So let's start in verse 1. It says this, The sayings of King Lemuel, an inspired utterance his mom taught him. Listen, my son. Listen, son of my womb. Listen, son, my son, the answer to my prayers. I want to start tonight by, by, by talking about what it means to be a man in the kingdom of God. What, what is healthy expectations of men in the kingdom of God. To begin tonight, I have to tell you, all you know is what you know. Did you know this? <laughs> all you know is what you know. Simply said, I cannot teach on or communicate or talk about something I don't know about, Right? A lot of us like to pretend to. Like a lot of culture does that, and it doesn't go very well. But all you know is what you know. See, the first thing's first. Never underestimate the power of a praying mom or a praying maternal figure in a man's life. Straight up. Seriously. Many men have come to know the Lord. Many men have been saved. Many men's destinies have been realigned by the power of prayer in somebody's life. So if you got a grandma who's got like a prayer closet, I don't know if that's a thing, okay, like give her a high five or a gift card to like bingo or something and just celebrate her. See, this entire text, it it rests on one word. The rest of tonight rests on this one word. This one word is taught, taught. See, all you know is what you know. And if you're an individual who is not very satisfied with what you know or where you're at in life, then the key to growing to the person you want to become, the key to growing and looking more like Jesus is being teachable. See, this begins with this man, this king, who held on to the words of his mom. This isn't live, right? This isn't live, him writing these down as she's saying. It's him recollecting, him him remembering the words she spoke to him. And see, he was teachable in this moment. And if you read different translations, uh, it sometimes says, no, no, my son, no, the son of my womb. If you're reading New King James, maybe, or ESV, I I believe. And it may be that the mom was chastising the young man when he was younger in life, right? Like he was going a little buck wild in the kingdom and she had to correct him, right? But this man, first of all, is teachable. Uh, Sigmund Freud was a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst in the 19th century, and he got a lot wrong, okay? He did about uh, enough cocaine to kill a small elephant, and he had terrible theories, and a lot of his stuff isn't upheld within psychology today. But one theory he did get correct that is kind of agreed agreed upon across the board in psychiatric and psychology work is family of origin. And, And family of origin is simply... The family you are raised up in, the family you are surrounded by, teaches you everything you know about life until you're out of that family. Like, you ever have this experience growing up? You go to a friend's house for the first time, and their mom, like, lets them drink, like, Capri Suns in a room and kick their feet up on the coffee table, wear their shoes inside, and, like, they talk back to their mom, and, like, oh, give me this, blah, blah, and you just turn and you think to yourself, that would never happen in my house, right? Like, you're just like, man... Okay, this explains why this person's so weird. The whole family messed up. That makes sense, right? Like, you, you go to a, another person's house for the first time, you're like, wait, not everybody puts their shoes this way by the door, not everybody rearranges their living room this way, or not everybody has the relationship to their parents this way. It's because all that we know about interacting with other people, we're taught by our original family of origin, right? Right? So, for good or for worse, right? Like, like you're taught how to treat. A person of the gender of a male and female through your maybe mother or father or maybe aunties, maybe your sister, your your cousins. And this could be for better or for worse. A lot of our dysfunction in in psychology, they point back to this. If you ever go to therapy, which everybody should, honestly, after the 2020, um, I'm just calling it the 2020 now, Okay. But if you ever go to therapy, they're going to pretty much point you back to family of origin. What happened in the home? What happened with your relationship dynamic between your mom and your dad? Did you have a mom and a dad? What was that like? And the point of that is we really do learn how to treat people based upon our family. And, And if you want to understand a man, if you want to understand how a man is going to treat you as a woman, look at how he treats his mom. Look at how he reveres his mom. Look at how he treats the women in his life. See, this, this proverb starts, and this man obviously honors and respects his mother. See, if you're somebody who is interested in dating, you feel like God's called you to that, you feel like God's called you to marriage, I want to challenge you with this that because a man is taught in a home, for better or for worse, how to treat a woman based upon what he is shown and taught and told, it's important that you pay attention to those same characteristics. It, when, the, when this individual, when they're around women that they grew up with, what, they, what is it like? Because, believe it or not, and time and studies have tested this, how he treats the original women in his household is how likely, is very likely, how he will treat women later on in his life. Because it's what he knows. And so for, for some of us, this feels very intimidating. Some of us, we grew up in homes where we didn't have good mom figures. We, we didn't have good relationships with our siblings. Maybe we we're only children. We, we didn't have good families growing up, if we're being quite honest. Well, if that's the case, there's, there's hope for us as followers of Jesus. Because as followers of Jesus, we are grafted into a new family. Jesus was approached in his ministry by, by his disciples, by a group of people, who were trying to call him away to another moment because his, his mom was needing him. And he turns to them and says, who is my mother? Who is my father? This, the, these people, this is my mother. This is my father. When Jesus is on the cross, he turns to the disciple John and says, take care of your mother. And he's talking about his own mother, Mary. So in the kingdom of God, there, there is room and growth for influence. There is room and growth for being taught new ways and methods on what is dysfunctional and what is sanctifying. See, dysfunction is taught. <laughs> Right, so I, my goal as a parent is like, how can I keep my son Wesley out of as much counseling as possible? Okay, like, how can I make him as least messed up as possible? I'm gonna try my best, but he's gonna take on a lot of my dysfunction, honestly. But sanctification, the process of looking and becoming more like Jesus, is lived and learned in obedience and discipleship to him. See, not only. In our family of origin, do we learn how to treat other people, specifically as it pertains to how to treat men and women? But I I believe as followers of Jesus, we've also been given influence. We've been given a godly influence. And, And how we treat people matters, whether you're a man or a woman. And specifically as men, I believe we need to really lead the charge on this, on how to treat others well. See, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 14, talking about salt and light, this is the godly influence I'm talking about. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Like early Hillsong Chris Tomlin was like playing in my head when I was reading that. Um, If you know, you know. There's some dysfunction and trauma. But anyway, how we treat people matters. And if you are not satisfied with the way you have been taught to treat people, there's good news. There's hope for you, my friend. Jesus wants to teach you, right? Like like this is, I believe, the heart posture of a masculine, godly man, Someone who's teachable. If you look at the life of Jesus, who was like the man's man, okay? If you don't want to get in the nuance of reading the Old Testament, don't look at David, okay? Please don't look at David. Don't look at Moses. Don't look at Abraham, right? He, he literally is told... Pharaoh, that his wife is his sister, bad move, okay, guy has no game. Don't look at these characters, look at Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate figure person of what godly, correct masculinity looks like, right? Jesus says, follow me, I am gentle and lowly of heart. Jesus was teachable, Jesus was humble. Jesus was also super masculine, he definitely curled Peter out of the water. So if you think he's a wimp, he wasn't, okay, Frederick Douglass, in commentary on slavery in the United States, said it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men, than to repair broken men. But thankfully, if you feel like a broken man tonight, Jesus is in the business of repairing you, right? And it's through the process of the sanctific- sanctifying work. We're never going to be perfect. We're never going to be with a perfect image of who Jesus is on this side of heaven. We're going to grow towards that image, be perfect as I am perfect, right? But we can live and learn and be teachable. So the question is posed tonight. For you as a man, are you, are you teachable or are you prideful? Are, are, you, are you somebody who makes eye contact? Are you somebody who listens before you speak? I mean, I'm thinking right now of men in my life who I look up to, and, and my friend Dominic Doan is somebody like this. He's like six foot two, could crush me with like his left hand. He's like strong and like super intelligent. He has a PhD and like guest teaches at Oxford, like one of the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life. But when you talk to him, he doesn't talk much. He he listens and he leans his head in because I'm like shorter than him, so like he like leans his head into me, and, and he he's like, oh wow, yeah. Yeah, interesting. What, what do you think about this? Or tell me more. And he has every reason to just talk to me all day. But he is more willing to listen than to be heard. See, an insecure man wants to be heard. A secure man desires to listen. So let's keep reading. Let's keep reading in, in verse 3. It says this, Do not spend your strength on women, your vigor on those who ruin kings. This is, this is the next concept I want to talk through tonight. When, when birds bite, when the birds bite and the bees sting. Okay? So I need everybody repeat after me because this is going to break the ice and ease the tension in the room. Okay? Repeat after me. Will you repeat after me? Okay? Promise? Okay. Sex is good. God made sex. Okay. Married people in the room are like, amen. Amen. See, God's original design for sex was good. In Genesis 2.25, it says, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. The opposite of the reality TV show, Naked and Afraid, right? Adam and Eve, in the, in the perfection of the garden, before the fall, before anything corrupted humanity, how God designed it was perfect. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And they're like, let's get it, Okay. And then they made Cain. And they're like, maybe we shouldn't have gotten it so much. <laughs> but, but God's original design is good. But, but for some reason, and for many reasons, the, the depravity of humanity, our choice of free will, introducing sin into the world, corrupting life as we know it, sex has been turned into this perverted and dirty and shameful thing. When God intended it and designed it to be something beautiful and wonderful and intimate and special. And this mother knows this, communicating it to the young king. And we don't know the context of why she is saying these things. Maybe it's things she's learned. Maybe she heard about King Solomon because this is a non-Israelite woman. She heard about King Solomon with his 1,000 wives up on the hill. Okay, 700 wives, 300 concubines. Okay, It was all the same thing pretty much. Maybe, maybe she's reprimanding him because of his mistakes. But she says two interesting things. She says, don't give your strength or your ways, is what most translations put that as, your ways to women who, who don't care for you, who aren't united to you, who aren't bonded to you in marriage, because it will ruin you as a king. See, when you, when you look up the, these words of strength and ways, Strength roughly translates in the Hebrew to ability, or this is what's interesting. It says ability, so somebody's strength or energy, but here's another interesting word in there. It's worth or wealth is another phrase that's added to that Hebrew word. And so the second one is ways, and it's a journey or pathway. It would be a word used for somebody going on a long journey or constructing a path for their life. And I think this is so accurate because... When somebody lives a life outside of God's original will of living as somebody who is fluid, doesn't care who they have sex with, has sex with whoever they desire, who just chases after pleasure, what they are doing is they're giving over their strength and their wealth and the way in which their life is going to go to the person they're uniting themselves to. See, sex is real. Sex is intimate. Sex, there's nothing to hide. And I believe that's why our culture worships it. Because we're craving as people, whether we believe in God or not, we're craving to be known by others. We're craving intimacy. We're craving realness. And so sex at the surface level seems to offer this. But outside God's design, we've we've talked through this, it, it ruins a person. It begins to control a person. It begins to determine somebody's personal worth in their life. It begins to determine the journey or pathway somebody is taking on their life for the sake of fulfilling a pleasure. One of the, the lead thinkers in the sexual revolution in modern society was this guy by the name of Michel Foucault. He was an awful human, uh, to be honest. But he, he has this quote. When talking about sexuality, that really speaks to an understanding how people celebrate it. It says this, to utter truths and promise bliss, to link together enlightenment, liberation, and manifold pleasures, to pronounce a discourse that combines the fervor and knowledge, the determination to change the laws, and the longing for the garden of earthly delights. That sounds like a description of a religion to me. And so as a culture, we've celebrated it, but we haven't set up the necessary structure that can sustain it, right? Like, like we celebrate and we tell people, just do whatever you want with any consensual adult. But then, then we can't solve the issue of abortions and then we can't solve the issue of consent and what does that look like? And we've created these patterns and these problems for ourselves. And even furthermore, th- think of men in popular culture who at one point were successful, who were affluent, who were entirely ruined because they couldn't keep their desires in check. Think of people like Ravi Zachariah. Think of people like Jeffrey Epstein. Like, like, how did these people become so perverse and so twisted? It started with one desire not being able to be submitted. It, it started with one desire, and that desire was just followed, and the desire controlled their life. And so, as men, what are we communicating on the worth and purpose of others? If sex is such a powerful thing that it can begin to determine and change the path and the course of somebody's life, what are we communicating? Because I believe as men in relationships, we lead the charge on this. That men, we are held to the standard of when we're with our girlfriend, our fiance, anybody that's not our wife. That we set the bar of no sex outside of marriage. No pushing boundaries. No sitting in the car in the back seat at night. That Like whatever it is that is pushing the boundary, that is towing the line, we set the bar of saying this isn't how it's going to be. I, 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 have, a, I have a traditional conservative view that, that men are natural leaders, right? I believe women can lead alongside men. I believe in relationships, men run the ball on this. And so as men, how are we communicating to the people we are surrounded by, the things we look at, the things we interact with, the things we say? On what people's worth and purpose is. Are we listening to culture and society that people are deduced to mere objects of sexual satisfaction? Or do we view people through the lens of made in God's image and made for more than our own gratification? And sadly, this is our reality. When the birds bite and the bees sting. Because that's not how God intended it. And so let's keep reading. Verse 4, it is not for kings, Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. Let beer be for those who are perishing, wine for those who are anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty, remember their misery no more. Um, in uh, 1999, year I was born, shout out, BBC, 90s baby, right? BBC interview, uh, David Bowie was asked why he had given up drinking. He was this rock star who, in the 90s, just went stone cold in terms of any kind of uh, engaging in substances. And he really broke the myth that you had to, in music, to be creative, you had to do drugs. And he broke that myth because he was one of the most talented musicians of all time. He said, I, he's, this is what he told the interview. The, the vulnerability in this interview is crazy. He said, I'm an alcoholic. When intoxicated, I'm insolent and not myself. For the sake of relationships, I stay sober. He's just so blunt and straightforward in this interview. And you don't have to interview all of Albuquerque to understand the depth and the harm that alcohol has done in our city, right? It's like I see a DUI poster on the side of the road every other day, and then the kids sitting in the back of the car didn't work, so then they did, like, different designs, and obviously our city can't catch a hint. The amount of abuse, the the, the assaults, the list could go on. I mean, you don't have to really leap far to understand alcohol, going along in surplus with anything, things don't go well. But I have something to say about this. I don't believe alcohol itself is the issue. See, alcohol is just a thing. Any conversation of people's inability for an attention span, they want to blame the iPhone. But maybe it's our addiction to dopamine from what the iPhone brings and we can't get off social media. That's the issue. Like, things are just tools. Jesus himself drank wine. Granted, it was like 1%, and wine nowadays is like 15%, right? The apostles drank alcohol. So it's easy to jump to a conclusion that alcohol is the demon. That if we just get rid of all the alcohol, we will be fine as a nation and restore ourselves. We tried that in the 20s. I don't know. It didn't work too well. More alcohol was made. See, I, I believe what matters as it pertains to any substance is people's relationship to that substance. See, for alcohol, if somebody's relationship to it is that the idea of not being able to drink it at the end of a hard day, uh, of just having to have one is almost like a no-go, is being told that you can't have it, it, the, the relationship to those questions determines the outcome of where people's priorities are. And see, alcohol is something that's powerful because as this king is recollecting, something happens when when people become majorly intoxicated. It does things to your brain. It makes you forget temporarily. It, It makes you forget about consequences and negative and positive. That's why people do crazy, stupid things. And alcohol has this element to where it makes people feel less lonely. And this is why it is so powerful. And I don't believe this proverb is to just make everybody not drink alcohol. But it's, it, it's saying any intoxicating substance which is stealing your focus, be wary of it. Any intoxicating substance that, that steals your focus, that, that steals away from your priorities, be, be wary of that. It could be nicotine. It could be alcohol. It could be dopamine from iPhones, right? Right? You see, and this, this is the third idea I want to communicate tonight. Don't lose focus on your purpose. Don't lose focus on your purpose. See, I, we have little time on this earth. Supposedly the average lifespan of like Gen Z is going to be 100 years old, and we all hate the idea of that, I guess. But we're going to live for what we think is a long time. But the truth is, in the grand scheme of history, 180 years, it's not that much. We have very limited time on this earth. We have very limited time. As followers of Jesus, it, it feels even shorter. It feels like the days are just escaping away from us. And if you believe that time's just infinite, have a kid, and then you'll realize time goes way quick. I I don't think we should be spending our time doing things that make us lose focus. Because when you overindulge in any area of substance, it steals away from who you truly are. People want to think that any substance brings out the real you. It makes you distracted. That's why people do this stuff. That's why people drink to forget. Anything that distracts you doesn't make the most of your time you should be wary of. And even Jesus, the whole point of communion is fascinating to me. See, people drink to forget, but through communion, Jesus calls us to drink to remember. I want, I want to recall Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 to you. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians. He says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who will live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so for us, we have to take and analyze in our life, in what areas am I leaning more on my flesh, on a substance, or a feeling, or desire, than I am leaning on the spirit of God in me? Because one is generally associated when pursued and sought after feelings of loneliness, feelings of envy. But when leaning on the spirit of God and stepping into what God has for you, there's no regret there. There's no shame. There's there's a trust. So don't lose focus on your purpose. And and I'm reminded of the words of Peter that, that Satan is on the prowl like a lion looking to sift whoever like wheat that as followers of Jesus, Satan is on the prowl and the lookout to sift followers of Jesus, to derail us, to distract us, to deter us from our purpose. Let's keep reading and wrap up verse 8. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. This is the last thought I want to conclude with. Think on the needs of the least of these. Think on the needs of the least of these. See, if you're desiring to see someone for who they really are, and I talked about this last week, put them in an environment, put them in a context where they're interacting with somebody who culture at large, society at large, doesn't deem as important, right? Like, like the average individual. Like, like put them in an interaction with talking with their trash person, right? The person that takes out their trash, right? Like it's not just a truck driving itself. There's people that drive those, Right? Like, like put them in front of a barista, right? Like, like put them in front of somebody whose society doesn't think about all the time, is always posting about. It's easy to act a certain way and be really kind to somebody when they have something to offer you, right? It's easy to treat people really well when they seem like they have something to give. But character is determined by how we treat people who seem to have nothing to offer us. How you treat the people in your life who seemingly have nothing to offer you in terms of any form of gain determines your character. See, Jesus was obsessed with this concept. Jesus was obsessed with the idea of the least of these. And, and in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, he, he talks about this. He pulls a little child to him and says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He is called, He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So at that time, children were regarded uh, as benefiting nothing to people. They, they, there was often case, cases of infanticide where people would just leave their babies on the side of the road, children were seen as a nuisance, they were seen as annoying, even to the degree that the disciples try to chase them away and Jesus calls them back, says do not turn these children away from me. Jesus says, until you assume the heart posture and you have this connectedness to people in society and culture who are not deemed important, until you do that, you do not look like me. You do not look like the attributes I carry. See, this is, this is so opposite of what it feels like to meet a politician, okay? If you ever met a politician, they're just like schmoozing everybody, okay? They're they're at some public gathering, they're shaking all the right hands, they're getting connected with all the powerful people. They're always thinking on how they can further their agenda. And when people ask me about politics, I say, yeah, I'm I'm all about politics being talked about in the church. Um, The politics of the kingdom of God, (laughs) right? Like, like, I'm all about John 3:30. He must increase, I must decrease. Right, like politics in the kingdom of God looks like this. It looks like being in a room and not thinking you're the most important person there. And, and for us men, it, it's, it goes back to this idea of being teachable, being humble, being somebody who listens. See, a leader isn't somebody who's fearsome and steps up and does all the hard things that nobody wants to do. Those, those are maybe elements. But a leader is somebody who is meek, And meekness has been said as power under control. Power under control. John Tyson uh, is a pastor in New York City. And he has kind of spearheaded this current movement of understanding what does biblical masculinity, masculinity, its a hard word to say, look like. And this is what he says. there's, There's many boys in men's bodies. And he begins to define the difference between a boy and a man. Says this, from ease to difficulty, boys embrace ease, men embrace difficulty. From self to others, boys are about themselves, men are about others. From the whole to apart, men realize they're only part of a greater story. From control to surrender, boys think they can maintain control. Men understand the mysterious power of surrender. From the temporary to the eternal, boys think about what matters right now. Men look at the bigger picture. See, boys are about themselves, men are about, are about others. If you feel tension tonight hearing this, you feel uh, as a man that you don't line up, don't look at society, don't look at cultural ridiculous standards that have been communicated, but look at the character of Jesus. Look at the heart posture of being somebody who thinks about others before they think about themselves. This is what I believe differentiates a man from a boy. Somebody who is quick to consider people in a room no one would consider. So may may we be teachable. May we be people that don't give our strength and our path in life to others who don't care for us. May we be people who any substance, anything that is distracting us from our purpose flee from those things, cut those parts out of our lives. And may we be men that others can look to, that we we think about other people, that we don't have to be the most important person in the room. I believe if we inherited these characteristics as men, families would look different, society at large would look different, our city would look different. There would just be a different culture created. Let me pray for us. Father, you see us in this room tonight. Lord, you see all the ways we feel like we have fallen short, all the ways that we don't measure up. God, I pray over the men in this room that if there's anything in their life, if there's any lies they are living into about what it means to be a man, may those lies be dispelled by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, may may we lean into and trust who you are. And God, I I pray for the, the women in the room who have been given desires to date and to marry, that you may give them a discernment of what to look for in a godly man. That they may not look to boys who waste time, who cause unnecessary heartbreak, Lord, they they may look to men who emulate your heart. May our priorities and our desires be realigned to what you desire and who you are. Pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, let's worship.